Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Monday, February 27th. I'm Desiree Frazier. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, as the legislature considers bills that would shift control over Jackson's water system, the federally appointed manager says he remains confident he can continue his work. Then employees in manufacturing jobs say some promises are falling short. Plus, a Mississippi professor examines the cost of cancel culture. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. A new contractor has been identified to operate and maintain the water plants, wells, and tanks in the city of Jackson. Last week, third-party administrator Ted Hennepin announced Jacob Solutions, who currently works with over 200 water systems across the country, will take on those tasks. Hennepin says Jacobs will not have much hand in the distribution of water, meaning the large task of replacing the system's antiquated piping will not fall on them. All of this, as lawmakers in the capital city consider legislation that could reform management and operations of the water system. But Hennepin tells our Lacey Alexander he's confident he'll be able to complete his duties. Jacobs is taking over the contract operations, so operation and maintenance of our water treatment plants in Jackson, as well as our wells and our uh, elevated storage tanks. So that's uh, that, those things combine to make the Jackson water system other than the pipes that distribute, distribute the water to our community. And a lot of our conversations, especially ones that you've had, have talked specifically about the piping being a big part of the problem. Will they be doing any work on that? Will they be contributing to that process at all? <laughs> Unfortunately, not yet. Uh, we're managing that on our, our uh, Jackson Water staff themselves. Some city employees are still employed doing that work, and we're bringing up a series of smaller contracts using local contractors. You know, that work requires a lot of uh, regular hands-on, boots-on-the-ground type things, and we didn't want to bring that extra requirement to Jacobs right now. We want them focused on providing quality water at all times, and we're working hard to, to solve our distribution system issues through a series of other contractors, likely. The resources that you had at the plant that Jacobs will now take over, what happens to those resources? So Jacobs hired uh, everyone that was interested in being hired. So all those folks have been absorbed. And so all those resources essentially have become Jacobs uh, folks now at this point, and they're under their employee, or they chose not to uh, work with them. Prior to this, they were all city employees, uh, and that's who was responsible for producing the water. 
once the order was impacted, the stipulated order that appointed me as the interim third-party manager, I was responsible for making sure the water was uh, was safe, met permit, and got out. It's been great to transfer that responsibility through this contract to Jacob, someone that really has the resources and knowledge to do that. When your contract goes away, what goes with you? So I'm hoping at that point I've, we've created a sustainable entity. Again, a lot of discussion statewide about what that might look like uh, that would carry this work forward uh, as a operator of the water system. So they would manage the contracts. I don't expect it to be a hands-on organization. I expect it to be a contract management rate, uh, bringing in the revenue, uh, satisfying customer complaints, things like that. That would all exist within contracts that would be managed by this uh, Jackson Water, what's currently Jackson Water, and the future uh, of that is some other entity doing that same work. Uh, I'm going to start having a series of community meetings over the next month to try to ask folks what would they want to see in that governance structure, what entity, who do they trust, who would they trust carrying this forward. If we can figure that all out, we can make, I can make a recommendation to the court about what that might need to look like to satisfy the judge enough to say, okay, let's keep moving forward so I'm not doing this forever. Speaking of courts, speaking of the state, uh, there's some bills going around the legislation right now where the state would have a little bit of a, more of a hand in Jackson. We're talking about a different court system in Jackson. We're talking about Capitol Police. We're also talking about the state potentially taking over the water system in Jackson. Um, would that happen? Talk to me about how you would be or wouldn't be involved in that. So as, a, as the bills have been written, uh, I would not be involved because they all kick in the minute that I'm done. And it's it's not me personally, it's this concept of the stipulated order with the interim third-party manager, whether it's me personally or some successor in, in future years. Once the judicial oversight is finished, that's when this would kick in with the state. Uh, so don't know when the judicial oversight will end. My gut feeling is, it, it, because there is no end date in the order, I think it's a wide uh, misinformation piece of this whole thing. It's not over to the judges satisfied that the system's sustainable, it's reliable and it's got a good path forward. And so that's going to take much longer than a year to get to that point. And uh, so I, I would expect maybe three, five, maybe even 10 years of additional judicial oversight before they get to that point. And if they get to that point and the state takes over, do you think that's a good call? <laughs> I think we, I, I think at that point, if we've gotten that far down the road and we've got public trust, we've got an operating system, I don't know that the state's going to be interested in taking over at that point. So were you confronted at all or were any conversations had with you about this bill? Uh, not initially, but I have now had deep conversations with the bill's uh, author, uh, Senator Parker, uh, Lieutenant Governor, the Speaker of the House, and the Governor. Uh, so I think everyone knows uh, we've had great dialogue around that. I wouldn't say that um, any of us are on the same page, but uh, we've all at least had great dialogue. And um, you said you talked to some of the lawmakers and you talked to them. Uh, Shokwe Antar Lumumba has verbally and very outwardly opposed um, kind of this involvement. What have your conversations been like with him? Yeah, I, I think we're in agreement that a just forced solution without community involvement is not a great solution. Uh, and so I think we're, again, I don't work for him. I work for the court. I try to keep all the parties informed. Uh, so he's expressed his opinions to me just as the state has, and we've had dialogue around that. I don't know that we agree on every point, just like uh, the state folks that I talked about, we don't agree on every point. But ultimately, it's going to be the judge and the federal oversight that uh, determines where I land. And third party is in your name. Do you kind of feel like a middleman between the city and the state right now? 
You know, I, I'm not necessarily I, because I've got such uh, such authority through the court. Uh, I feel like I can. They, they're both people, or they're both constituents. I need to listen to and get input from, along with the actual citizens of Jackson that are served by the water. I, I try not to do anything uh, unilaterally, and so I love to get all that input. But I don't feel like I'm stuck between them because I've got a job to do that the court has appointed me to do, and I'm moving forward. One last question for you. We talked about Jacobs today. We talked about the community college uh, today. What is the next big step for Jackson Water? So the next big step is uh, really find and fix on the leaks and then getting some major capital projects rolling to replace pipes in the city. So those are the small diameter pipes that um, many of which are two inch in diameter uh, serve folks. They, they cause pressure problems. They cause aesthetic problems with the water. It may be discolored. It may have odor. It doesn't look safe, but it is um, really hard to convince someone when they fill their tub and it's brown that that's safe water to put your child in to bathe. Fully understands pe people's distrust and concern. We're going to address that by replacing all those small pipes, but that's 100 miles of streets that are going to be torn up. Going to take five to ten years probably, but we're going to get going on that very, very soon. And do you have an idea of which area will get pipes fixed first, or are you still figuring that out? We're still figuring that out. It's going to be a combination of you know the repair records in those areas, uh, some of the water complaints in those areas, and then you know everyone's going to want their street done first. So we're going to have to have some really subjective criteria to determine what streets get done first because if it's a 10-year project nobody wants to wait 10 years while their neighbor's streets are getting fixed so a very complicated criteria to build to make sure it's a very subjective approach and not influenced by other factors thank you mr hennepin ted hennepin is the federally appointed third-party manager of the jackson water system Coming up, workers in manufacturing jobs say some promises are falling short. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Manufacturing jobs are growing across the South with promises of better work. But a recent study finds many employees are reporting low job quality. Policy Center Jobs to Move America has polled manufacturing workers across Mississippi and Alabama to rate their satisfaction with their current job. Emily Erickson with the University of Warwick led the research and analysis of the report. What we really wanted to do was try to understand what's it like inside some of these facilities, and then what is the impact they're having on our communities, so kind of an inside-outside look. So a, a cornerstone of local and state-level economic development strategies in Mississippi and Alabama, as well as other places, has been to try to recruit manufacturing facilities to open in, in their jurisdictions. The idea here is that uh, using and investing public money and providing tax and non-tax incentives to encourage private businesses to locate in a jurisdiction. And the hope is that this will serve as what we call a big push that would kickstart a virtuous cycle of investment and economic growth, right? So that's 
the aim or the ambition here. And we've put a lot of uh, money behind this, right? So since the mid-90s, it's estimated that uh, Alabama and Mississippi together have probably spent nearly $10 billion on corporate subsidies to attract and retain major organizations um, to operate uh, facilities in our, in our backyards. The recruitment of manufacturing industries and an emphasis on workforce development have been hallmarks of Governor Tate Reeves' tenure in office. But the state's economic growth and gross domestic product has lagged behind much of the nation. Erickson says there are also systemic barriers in place when examining job quality. However, despite all of this, and as we've talked about and foreshadowed a little bit, we know that our communities are continuing to struggle. Right, um, health, education, poverty, overall kind of childhood well-being indicators um, all show routinely show Mississippi and Alabama ranking kind of towards the bottom, right? If not the very bottom of U.S. states. And furthermore, right, race-based inequalities and those continuing legacies of racial discrimination remain core challenges that face the region. As um, Jennifer Clyde Woods wrote about unequal or what he would call plantation relations in his, in his phrasing, uh, unequal relations can be reproduced under a variety of conditions so long as there's no systematic challenge to that status quo. So in other words, how, how I interpret this is this idea that economic development atop unequal systems won't magically fix that inequality. We need to be much more purposeful about it. So with this kind of context, right, the hope of the promise of firm recruitment and jobs, but then the reality of communities that are still struggling. That's where we're placing this work. That's what we're trying to figure out. Our report asks why. Why is this happening? So um, that's what we do. We look at the nature of work in these facilities to see if there's something about that that might help us understand that link between jobs and overall well-being at the individual and community level. Workers reported some of their needs are being met, but there are several areas that fall below what is desired in a quality job. While job aspects such as pay, terms of employment, and employee pride were identified as partially successful, the report found major disparities in job safety, representation, and work-life balance. And there are also racial disparities. So there were significant gaps in our responses here, though, again, based on the race of the respondent. So, for example, families have enough money to get by. Uh, so 38% of white respondents agreed or strongly agreed, compared to just 19% of black respondents. And neither is very high, right? Uh, it's not great for anybody here. Um, but the gap is an indication that black families were struggling or see, witnessing that struggle to a greater degree than their white neighbors. And I think that all of this is important context, again, because it helps us to understand some of the needs in our communities and some of those trade-offs that are occurring when we choose to invest in um, things like tax incentives and firm recruitment and not in other areas. Since labor experts say it's often easy for outside manufacturers to stifle worker and community concerns since they are the primary financial hub of rural and underserved areas. Coming up, a Mississippi professor examines the cost of cancel culture. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit, you get information about foods you should eat to stay in good health and tips on how to stay active. 
I'm Josie Bidwell, host of Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit, an associate professor of preventive medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Listen to the show every Monday at 11 or subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy with your preferred podcasting app. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Scott Adams grew to prominence in the 1990s with his satirical look at office life. His Delbert comic strip became a fixed part of many comic sections in newspapers and even had a short life as an animated series. This morning, numerous papers, including USA Today and its network, announced they will stop running the strip following comments Adams made on his podcast. It's the most recent example of what some call cancel culture. We decided to ask Katie Howie, a professor of marketing at the University of Southern Mississippi, to define and explain this growing trend. Cancel culture is when a group of people are trying to take away um, usually a public figure or company's platform or voice, power, livelihood, financial resources, partnerships, um, Within cancel culture, we see all sorts of punitive um, demands being made, and it's in a response to a perceived transgression. Normally, it's it's moral in nature. So a faction of the public sees something that a public figure has done wrong that they don't agree with. And in response to that, they unite with their voices on usually Twitter and demand consequences. The thing with cancel culture is generally you can't make the public happy who's calling for cancellation. Like the only way to appease them is to give them exactly what they asked for. Kind of like a toddler, right? If they want to run into the middle of the street, they're not going to be happy until they get to run into the middle of the street. So is cancel culture just a new name for trying to destroy someone's reputation? So the motive is the same. I would argue that the way that it occurs and the effectiveness is what's new. Because of Twitter and because of algorithms, people are able to unite in ways that they couldn't before, especially smaller niche groups. And they're able to get a loud voice, which, you know, generally would be very hard to do. The algorithms that we see in social media and with YouTube, they are outrage machines. What they do is they look for highly emotive content. So content that has really strong emotions attached to it. And that is the content that they promote because that's the type of content keeps people scrolling and keeps people interested. It's not, you know, a very civil diplomatic conversation, right? That's not, you know, that's boring. That's not sensational. So those types of interactions, we don't ever see. Twitter, Facebook, they're not putting those in our feeds because they're not the really addictive content that keeps people on those platforms for longer. What are the implications for this? Implications on a societal level, they 
it's toxic. It does not portray an accurate picture of who our neighbors and the people who live in our world with us are. A political poll found only 8% of people reported actively engaging in cancel culture. Um, In general, Twitter is predominantly about 22% of the users who are creating the content. Um, So it's giving us an inaccurate portrayal of what's happening in our world. It's furthering our political polarization severely. We, in the research that we've done, we find that who cancels the, the different parties like to point fingers. But what we find is it's less about what you believe, whether you're a Democrat or a Republican, and it's more about how strongly you hold those beliefs and how strongly your identity is ingrained around this ideology. Okay. So if I really strongly hold democratic beliefs, I'm going to be more likely to engage in cancel culture. If I really strongly identify and hold the beliefs of a Republican, I'm going to be more likely to engage in cancel culture. But what the public thinks is that it's more a symptom of the other party. And we like them in we like them less and it's harder for us to identify and listen to them. Would you say that this has been a part of what we're seeing in society right now? People can't get along and there's a lot of division. Absolutely. I I think it's both a symptom of it and it's also feeding into it and it's making it worse. We have so much content thrown at us so quickly we don't, we lose all nuance and there's not fact finding or fact checking. We hop on and we want to join the discussion too. And no one is really finding out the full story and we want to read two lines and then feel like we have understood everything. And I would say 99% of the major topics in our country are extremely complex and multifaceted and they're hard to understand. And without that understanding, we can't understand, like understanding what the other side of the aisle is doing and why is really complicated, but there's a lot of like common humanity and all of it, but nobody's got the time or energy to find it. Cancel culture has created this mindset of we need to police one another and that public shaming is a useful tool. And I would argue that while we can be vigilant in helping improve our societal moral standards, there's really specific and important ways that we need to do it. And shaming is not a healthy approach. While it might change behavior over the long term, it's not achieving what we think it's achieving. Um, People are not going to be genuinely motivated to change and become better people through shame. Um, We can use compassion and still hold boundaries and hold people accountable. And 
by using a more compassionate lens of, hey, you stated this, it's really offensive or harmful to this group of people. I'm not sure if you meant it this way, but I, you know, I think you could use more education around this and, you know, here's some resources or I'd love to talk to you about it and tell you more about it. Dr. Katie Howie, Assistant Professor of Marketing, College of Business and Economic Development, the University of Southern Mississippi. Thank you so much for enlightening us on this topic. Desiree, I so enjoyed it. Thank you for having me. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.